0: I'd like us to read together from Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 26. We've been working our way through Matthew's Gospel over the last number of months. And I'd like to read from verse 17 to verse 30 of Matthew chapter 26. And our focus this morning to be on this passage and some of the events surrounding this passage. Matthew 26 beginning at verse 17. It's on page 996 of the copies of the Bible that's in the pews. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, The teacher says, My appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, surely not I, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. Jesus answered, Yes, it is you. While they were eating, Jesus took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn. They went out to the Mount of Olives. And we'll end the reading at verse 30 of this portion of God's word. The name Dan Brown is probably a name with which you're familiar as a consequence of uh, news reports. If you weren't already familiar with it as a result of the publishing phenomenon called the Da Vinci Code. And Dan Brown has been defending... His work as original work and not plagiarized in a civil action that has been taken by two guys, who have, two of three, who have written a, a book which they say follows a very similar theme and a very similar plot, which was basically just pinched by Dan Brown. I don't know whether you've read the Da Vinci Code. Are many people here have read the Da Vinci Code. Many? Oh yeah, quite a lot of us. And there will soon be a, a film coming up about the Da Vinci Code, which apparently can't be released until this court case is settled, which is all very interesting. But one of the features of the Da Vinci Code book is this idea that there were secrets which were being hinted at in the work of the great artist Leonardo Da Vinci and that part of the secrets, and I hope this doesn't ruin the plot for those of you who haven't read the book, but anyway, tough. Um, Part of the secret is that in Leonardo's picture of the Last Supper, um, it would appear that one of the... Uh, personalities around the table at the Last Supper is in fact feminine very deliberately depicted as feminine by Leonardo da Vinci and that really this along with lots of other very convoluted things is part of a, a, a code, a hidden message um, Which indicates that in fact Jesus was married to Mary Mary Magdalene and that this was a, a great secret that has been kept by the church under wraps for years but was known to a very small select group of people in a particular secret order of which Leonardo da Vinci was a member and was hinting at in his work and the whole thing is unraveled for you by Dan Brown and if you want to know why you don't really need to believe the Bible and Christianity and all the rest you can read the book. Which is not really actually what Dan Brown's trying to do. He's writing a novel. Um, but there are a lot of people who actually in reading the novel think that the facts that he talks about are facts when in fact the facts are fiction. But then who's to know the difference these days when half the news you hear is fact but is in fact fiction because of the way in which it's told. It's all very confusing and all very interesting. But the whole idea of what was happening at the Last Supper, intrigues people. Not just the Dan Browns of this world, and not just what hidden messages might have been left there by an artist many, many hundreds of years later, who apparently belonged to some secret organisation, which I gather wasn't actually established until the 1950s, but that's irrelevant in the whole scheme of the thing. And how all these things work. But for us as Christians, there are lots of questions about what happens ...in this Last Supper as well. And I'd like to take a little bit of time this morning... ...to think about some of the events that are taking place here... ...really more about the significance of what's happening... ...around the timing of what's happening. Um, And I think that that's going to be helpful to us... ...in the following week, not next Sunday because John's here... ...but the week after that... um, ...what I want to do is then follow the story of Peter and Judas... ...through most of the rest of the account... uh, ...up to the burial of Jesus... ...and to take a look at that whole section... Um, through the eyes of what happens with both Peter and Judas. But this morning I want us to think about this passage, verses 17 to 30, and to think about the meal that is being celebrated and to think a little bit about the timing uh, of this meal, which is the source of much writing and discussion and debate. Let's think a little bit about the meal itself. The meal was first celebrated some 1,300 years or more Before Jesus and his disciples meet together in Jerusalem. It was a Passover meal. And the Passover meal finds its roots way back in the story, the early days of the people of God. Abraham's grandson or one of his grandsons uh, was a person called Jacob. And Jacob himself had 12 sons, one of whom you'll be familiar with in particular, called Joseph. And Joseph, you may remember, was not the favourite of his brothers and was taken by his brothers, sold as a slave, uh, spent most of the rest of his days in Egypt and became a really very important person in Egypt as a consequence of things that happened and the way God worked things out for Joseph. And then there was a famine. And as a consequence of the famine in the land where Jacob and the rest of the family were, they all find themselves in Egypt and ultimately find themselves reconciled with Joseph. It's a tremendous story. You can read all of it in Genesis. Uh, And part of the outworking of this is that these Hebrew peoples, the descendants of Abraham, the great-grandchildren of Abraham, find themselves resident in Egypt. And they're going to be there, as God had prophesied. Uh, for quite some time in fact they're there for over 400 years clearly Jacob and his immediate sons have passed on and there's a time when this community of people who went as shepherds which wasn't the most distinguished form of employment as far as the Egyptians were concerned at that time become very prosperous but they also as they become more prosperous become something of a threat and instead of simply being welcomed there and appreciated for what they contribute, they become a problem. They become not just an ethnic minority within a community, they become a real threat. And we're aware of the way in which all of that has played out in 21st century Britain. And the challenges that many people feel are raised by various ethnic groups which become stronger within communities. And the fear that it generates, irrational fear very often, but exactly the same thing was happening in Egypt. And these people then become oppressed by the majority community. They become slaves and are made to work harder and harder and their circumstances become extremely difficult. And these people, who were the descendants of Abraham, to whom God had made a promise that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed and his descendants would be more numerous than the stars in the sky, these people find themselves seriously oppressed in Egypt. God calls a man and raises up a man called Moses, who in physical terms is literally raised in Pharaoh's household in a wonderful way. And then for 40 years is nurtured in the desert as a consequence of some of the actions that he had taken, not least in the killing of an Egyptian. And after those 80 years is called by God to come and to lead his people out. And you may be familiar with the account of how Pharaoh sta- Moses stands before Pharaoh and repeatedly says that the Lord says, let my people go. And Pharaoh refuses. And every time Pharaoh refuses, the gods in whom he puts his trust are challenged by Moses. And as they're challenged by Moses, events take place. Plagues occur, which would normally have been associated with these Egyptian gods, but over which they are powerless And Moses indicates time after time after time that there is a God who is superior to all the gods of Egypt. And it is this God, the God of Israel, who is saying, let my people go. And Pharaoh constantly refuses, his heart is hardened, until it comes to the great climax. It's the make or break moment. Are these people of promise... The people that God had established through Abraham, are they going to be delivered? Will they ever see the promises of God? Is God powerful enough to deliver on his promises? Is he powerful enough to deliver these people out of slavery and ultimate oblivion if they were to stay in these circumstances? What is going to happen? And you may remember the account of how Moses, in a heated exchange with Pharaoh, makes it very clear to Pharaoh that there is one more judgment, one more plague to come, which will be the death of the firstborn of everything in Egypt. And he goes back to his own people. And you can read all about this in Exodus chapter 11. In fact, you might like to turn to Exodus chapter 7 and just see how some of this works. You can read all about the events of what happens here in the early chapters of Exodus and the way in which he goes back to the people and he tells them we need to make provision for what God is about to do. And the provision that we need to make on this particular occasion is to sacrifice a lamb and to take its blood and to sprinkle it over the doorposts of our houses and to prepare ourselves to leave Egypt because a messenger of death is coming upon this land. And the firstborn of everything is about to die unless people and livestock are sheltered under the sprinkled blood of this sacrificed lamb. That will be the sign that God sees his people and their obedience to him and he will pass over them in his judgment and his judgment will fall on the Egyptians and his people will be delivered. And that's exactly what happens. In chapter 11 uh, Moses meets with uh, Pharaoh he explains in verse 4 This is what the Lord says about midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the slave girl who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt. Verse 9 The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the Israelites go out of this country. And Moses in chapter 12 goes back to the Israelites and he gives them instructions. He says, tell the whole community, verse 2, verse 3, that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. And then he says in verse 6, take care of these lambs until the 14th day of the month, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. And they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames and the houses where they eat the lambs. And that same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. And particular instructions are given, like verse 11. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So the people of Israel, the Israelites, The Hebrew peoples are prepared for something that is going to happen. The judgment of God on the sinful rebelliousness of Pharaoh and the hardness of his heart. And what will keep them safe? What will be the sign of their salvation? Will be the sprinkling of the lamb's blood on the doorposts. The act of obedience to God and the act of putting themselves under the care and the protection of God. And all of this is exactly what happens. And so on the 10th day, in anticipation of this, they choose their lambs. On the 14th day at twilight, they slaughter them. And they eat the, the lambs with the bitter herbs and the unleavened bread and prepare themselves to leave quickly. And the people do as they're told. And they recognize that this is not to be a one off event, but a lasting memorial of God's provision and salvation for his people. Look at verse 24 of chapter 12. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. So when Jesus meets with his disciples in Matthew chapter 26, this is what they're meeting to do. They're meeting to remember God's provision of salvation for his people. A people oppressed. But a people who, if they do not put themselves under the protection of God, will find themselves experiencing the same kind of judgment that God is about to bring upon Egypt for its hardness and its sinful rebellion. But in doing so, discover God's salvation. So Jesus is sitting at a table. They're retelling this story in the very food that they eat, in the way in which they remember this Passover. They're telling the story of God's gracious provision for his people. They're giving thanks to God. The timing of all of this is quite interesting and quite challenging. And I don't want to go into all the details of it. But if you read Matthew, Mark and Luke and then you read John's Gospel, it appears that there's some kind of clash or challenge here about when all of this happens. Does all of this happen at the same time, or does it happen on the night before Passover? In other words, does Jesus eat the Passover meal early with his disciples, or does he eat at the same time as everybody else? And I'm not going to go into all the details of that, but the significance of it is, raised by people as asking the question, is Jesus crucified at the same time as the lambs are being slaughtered in the temple, that is, at twilight on the 14th of the month? When people would have been slaughtering the lambs in the temple precincts. Because if you follow one particular uh, working out of the timetable, then that's what's happening. Or is Jesus being crucified after the people together, as a community had eaten the Passover and just before the Sabbath, so that they have all celebrated God's salvation and are now unwittingly about to put it into practice? in the most amazing way in the death of Christ. As I say, there's a huge amount written on this, and I'm not going to go into all of it this morning. The significant things for us to think about this morning are these. In these few verses, in Matthew 17 to 30, one of the first things that we see is that sinful people have fellowship with Jesus around a Passover meal. Now, we looked at it. We're going to come back to this in a few weeks' time. But we looked at it and and we heard Jesus say to his disciples in verse 20 and 21. uh, When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. Um, the, The wording, the translation of verse 22 apparently is very poor in most translations. It's not that they were very sad, as in a little bit deflated. It was that they were shocked and vehement in their denial that such a thing could possibly happen. And here we have an image, an account of Jesus sharing this Passover meal, having fellowship with people who are sinful people by nature, by choice who are not competent to be faithful to God because of the way we choose to live our lives in rebellion against God. Luke draws this out even more. Luke explains to us that around this particular Passover meal, another rye erupts among them, a rye about who's going to be the greatest. And here, as Jesus celebrates this feast, this important celebration of God's salvation for his people, He's sharing it with people who don't fully understand the implications, people who are sinful by choice and by nature, as demonstrated in the behaviour of the disciples, most specifically in the behaviour of Judas, but in all of them together. They're all culpable. They're all part of this. And this is what is going on at this particular point. Secondly, in this particular event and what is happening here, we see Jesus not only remembering with his disciples... God's salvation as the people, the Hebrew peoples, were delivered out of Egypt. But we have Jesus investing all of it with a whole new significance. While they were eating, verse 26, Jesus took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Did they reflect on words that Jesus had uttered previously, recorded for us in John 6, about identifying with him and using language that offended many people? About his body and sharing in that and sharing in his blood? Did they think about that and simply skip over it? Oh yes, we have heard something like this before. And then he takes the cup in verse 27 and he says, Drink from it all of you. This is my blood poured out of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. How did they respond to this? However they responded, however they coped, what is happening here is that Jesus is investing this whole meal and its significance... With a whole new significance. And we as we are going to share in a minute or two are going to be like the disciples. Thinking about the significance of Jesus' death on the cross as our Passover. His body broken for us. And his blood of the new covenant poured out for us for the forgiveness of our sins. And yet in the middle of all of this, Jesus does the routine things. And one of the routine things is to follow the pattern of the meal and to follow the pattern of thanksgivings at the meal. And one of those thanksgivings is the thanksgiving for the bread and the thanksgiving for the wine. So that when Jesus would have taken the bread and given thanks, it wasn't simply a matter of giving thanks for the unleavened bread that was in front of him. It would have been... Um, to rehearse a phrase that was used by the Jewish people and still is at Passover time. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who bringest forth bread from the earth. A blessing of God, giving thanks to God for all his provision, symbolised in that bread that they're going to share together. And they would have been singing psalms together, It talks in verse 30 about when they had sung a hymn. They went out to the Mount of Olives. And the the songs that they would have been singing together were taken from the book of Psalms. A particular section of the Psalms. They're called the Hallel Psalms or Psalms of Praise. And some of the Psalms that they would have been singing would have been Psalm 116. And probably at this particular point in the meal, Psalm 116 to Psalm 118 would have been the Psalms they they were singing. I love the Lord for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. Because he turned his ear to me, I will call on him as long as I live. The cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came upon me. I was overcome by trouble and sorrow. Then I called on the name of the Lord, O Lord, save me. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. The Lord protects the simple-hearted. When I was in great need, he saved me. Be at rest once more, O my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. One of the great psalms of God's deliverance, sung at this particular time. All part of the context of praise and giving thanks that is going on here at this particular time. And here... Jesus is proclaiming God's love in his own death in a way which is only going to become apparent to the disciples later on, as is apparent for us this morning as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Who around that table would have thought that the prophecy of Isaiah, rehearsed in Isaiah 53, was about to unfold before their eyes within the next 24 hours? That as the night would wear on, they would find themselves running away from Jesus. They would hear of his trial. They would follow behind as he's taken and crucified. They would, some of them, stand at a distance and watch what was going on here. They would see the Lamb of God, whom John the Baptist had called them to follow, being crucified for them. And Jesus is anticipating all of this as he eats this meal with his disciples. And tells them, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. There will be no more Passovers for us to celebrate. We may be a group of men in our early thirties, but this is the last one. We will not be gathering as old men to celebrate this Passover together around a table such as we do in this room in Jerusalem. There is something profound that is about to happen at this particular Passover. And also, there seems to me to be a challenge here, a challenge to the disciples, a challenge to them to be faithful, a challenge which is taken up in other parts of Scripture, a challenge to holy living and understanding what that means. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when you turn over to 1 Corinthians 5, you'll find it on page 1147. The Apostle Paul is writing about real problems in the church there, problems of gross sexual immorality. He talks about how a man is having um, sex with his father's wife, and the church don't seem to mind. In fact, they're very proud of how they function as a church. And uh, the Apostle Paul, in in verse 5, talks about the judgment that is necessary in the handing of this person over. Look what he says in verse 6 as he addresses the issue of morality and holiness and Christian living. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be, a new batch without yeast as you really are. Remember that at Passover time, the houses of the Jewish community would have been swept clean of yeast. All the bread would have been unleavened bread for the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread the next seven days. Yeast was something that symbolized the perversive. Uh, influence of sin amongst the the people of the community get rid of the whole of the old yeast that you may be a batch without yeast as you really are for christ our passover lamb has been sacrificed therefore let us keep the festival not with the old yeast the yeast of malice and wickedness but with bread without yeast the bread of sincerity and truth And the Apostle Paul picks up on what happens at this meal with Jesus. And the same way in which Jesus sets out a challenge to his disciples about their loyalty and about their love. A challenge at which they are offended and don't actually believe is going to happen. That one of them is going to betray him. Or that Peter is going to deny him. So there is a challenge taking place here to the people of God as to how they're going to live. What's the purpose of getting rid of the yeast from your houses? What's the purpose of this Passover meal? What's it saying to us? It's not just saying thank you to God for his deliverance. It's reminding us that it is part of the covenant terms of being the people of God. And that's about being called to a life of holiness for the glory of God. So all of this is taking place in these few verses, and all of this is about to take place here in the next few minutes. We come to this celebration in fellowship with Jesus. We come not because we're good people, not because you've managed not to sin in the past week. We come precisely because we are sinners, all of us. And in need of God's mercy and grace. And we recognize that in the expression of our dependence on the death of Christ for our salvation. And sharing in the bread and wine which remind us of his body broken and his blood shed. We're remembering that there is where our forgiveness lies. It's not in the righteous life that you're going to go and live in the next week. It's not in the turning over of a new leaf. It is in the death of Christ that forgiveness is to be found. Not in good intentions. We're giving thanks to God for his gift of salvation and affirming our trust in him. Just as they used to do in Passover meals, we do, but with a whole new emphasis and a whole new understanding. And we're telling the story of God's love to us in Jesus Christ. Just as they told the story of God's love to them in the deliverance out of Egypt. But also are committing ourselves to living righteously, holy lives before God that's what Paul does he takes this and he talks about Christ as our Passover lamb who has been sacrificed for us so let's live lives that reflect the glory of that deliverance that is ours in Jesus Christ let's get rid of the old yeast and be unleavened bread for the glory of God that's what's happening in these verses that's what's happening as we share in this together so perhaps as you just retain or remain seated, we'll sing together these words of this song. What kind of love is this? A song of reflection, an opportunity to reflect on what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And then we're going to read together Isaiah chapter 53. So you might like to turn to that. Um, you'll find it in the Bibles and the pews on page 740, Isaiah chapter 53. But let's begin by singing together the words of this song. What kind of love is this?